The story is told uh, of a Sunday school teacher who thought her lessons were getting a bit boring and a bit predictable. She decided that she would teach them a bit about the wonders of God's creation all across the world. So she started teaching them about animals in Australia. Uh, She told them a little bit and then asked them a question. She said, what lives in trees is furry and eats only eucalyptus leaves? And there was a stunned silence uh, in in the classroom. The children didn't seem to be understanding. So she asked again, what lives up trees is furry and only eats eucalyptus leaves? And eventually one boy uh, got a bit of courage to put his hand up. And he said, I know the answer must be Jesus. But it sounds, <laughs> sounds awfully like a koala. Um, <laughs> Bubum, yeah. <laughs> groan is a good response in those days, as I keep saying. Groan is good. Um, but uh, that's it, isn't it? Jesus is the Sunday school answer. We know that. Uh, I get at assemblies every, every fortnight when I do them in schools. Pretty much any question that I can ask. Somebody will put their hand up and suggest that the answer is Jesus, even when it seems to make no sense whatsoever. He's the Sunday school answer, but there's a reason that he's the Sunday school answer. Without him, the Bible doesn't make a lot of sense. Without him, the Bible would be quite a strange book. So it's my big idea this morning that the Bible is all about Jesus, that it only really makes sense through him. So, some of you will be thinking, hang on a second, you're saying that the theme of the Bible is Jesus, but didn't you tell us right at the beginning of this hitchhike that the Bible is actually all about the kingdom of God? God's people in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing. My mantra, as somebody put it this week. Isn't that what the Bible's all about? Now you're saying it's all about Jesus. Well, you'd be right. There does seem to be a bit of an issue there. Is it about the kingdom of God? Or is it about Jesus? Well, this morning we're going to see that the kingdom of God is fulfilled in Jesus. The kingdom of God is most perfectly seen in Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on the earth, the kingdom of God was present. That's why we're calling it this morning the present kingdom. Not the present as it is now, as in the time we live in, that will be next week. But when the kingdom of God was present among us in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect expression of the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place enjoying his rule and blessing. So what I mean by that, firstly, is that God's people is Jesus. God's people is Jesus. So if you remember, we saw in our our big diagram, didn't we, that we had uh, Adam uh, there as, as God's people, we had the Israelites, we had all these different things. Well, what I'm saying is that's really summed up in Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam, we know that, we, we sang about it just before, we had that verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 45. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a life, uh, living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Romans as well compares the two and says that Jesus is the new Adam. And I suppose in a way we're familiar with this in a way, Jesus <clears throat> had to be the new Adam in a way to represent the whole of humanity, to be able to represent his people. So Jesus is the new Adam. I think we're quite familiar with that in in a way. But what we're not so familiar with, possibly, is that Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the new Israel. We see that in our passage that we're looking at this morning in in Matthew chapter 2. You might find it helpful to have it open uh, in front of you. We see that Jesus is the new Israel in this passage in, in several different ways. The first way that we see it, really, we picked up a little bit on it at Christmas time, is the storyline of Matthew 1 to 5, 
We've picked up there uh, in the middle of it. But really, Matthew's chapter, chapters 1 to 5 is a retelling of the Exodus story. You get the murder of the baby boys in our passage. You get the coming out of Egypt. You get the going through the waters of baptism. That's in chapter 3. Uh, we see that that's compared with going through the Red Sea uh, in Peter. We saw that a little bit when we looked at baptism in our distinctives. He then goes on to call his 12 disciples. There's a reason that there are 12 of them. Uh, he then goes on uh, into the wilderness for 40 days. Not years, but days. He's tempted with idolatry. He's tempted with bread. He's tempted with putting God to the test. He then gathers his people round a mountain and he teaches them about the law. The setting is the New Testament, but the plot is Old Testament. It's the Exodus. And Jesus is playing the part of Israel. Jesus is being that Israel that, that goes through all those things. Except that Jesus succeeds where Israel fails, but he's playing the role of Israel. It's a bit like, um, I don't know if you've seen the TV series House uh, with Hugh Laurie. He plays a doctor in that. House is like Sherlock Holmes. I don't know if you you know this. Uh, House was actually based on Sherlock Holmes. So in House, he's a drug addict obsessed with puzzles. Sherlock Holmes is a drug addict obsessed with puzzles. Dr. Wilson is his psychic who keeps him under control. And Dr. Watson is his psychic that keeps him under control. They both live at 221B Baker Street, if you look carefully at his address. Holmes plays the violin, House plays the piano. And the creator said they called him House because it's like home. House, home. Homes. It really is that close. But you miss it, don't you? Unless somebody points it out to you, just how close those two are. So House is Holmes, Wilson is Watson. The difference is the time and the setting. That's only really, really different. He's a doctor and he lives in modern day. Sherlock Holmes, unless you watch the modern ones, lives in Victorian times and is a detective. But it's the same here. They're both playing the same role. It's trying to show you something about Jesus. It's trying to show you that he is the new Israel, just by the plot of the early chapters of Matthew. But the other way that he shows us that is the quotations that he uses in our little section here. So if you if you turned away from uh, Matthew chapter 2, it would be helpful to have it open. He uses two quotations here. One is from Hosea 11, and the other one is from Jeremiah 31. Now, I don't want us to go and read all those. We had quite a lot of long readings last week. But do take a note of those to go and have a look at them at home. But they, let me tell you that they have three things in common. Hosea 11 uh, and Jeremiah 31 both promise a return from the exile. So when you read in verse 6, uh, and O you of Bethlehem, uh, sorry, not verse 6, sorry, um, verse 18, a voice was heard in Rama weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. What that's talking about in the original context is actually the children in Judah being taken away into exile. That's why Rachel is crying. They're being sent off to exile that we talked about last week. And the rest of the passage actually is far more upbeat. It's promising that they'll return from the exile. So they both speak about a return 
from the exile. Uh, But secondly, they also speak about that return like a new exodus. They both speak about that return like a new exodus. So uh, in verse, um, back there in in verse, my eyes are suddenly gone. Um, Verse 15, uh, this was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, what's that talking about? God calling his son out of Egypt? That's talking about the Exodus. That's talking about God bringing his people out, his son, Israel, out of um, the uh, slavery in Egypt. And what the passage goes on to promise is a repeat. It says that they'll come back from Egypt, but they're not really in Egypt. They're in Assyria. They're in Babylon. It's deliberately framing it like a new Exodus. So both passages look at this idea of, of a new Exodus. And then finally, the third thing that they have in common is that they speak of Israel as God's son. So the son in Hosea coming out of Egypt, well that's Israel, isn't it, coming out of Egypt? The son in Jeremiah is Israel as well. So Jeremiah 31, verse 9, it's on the back of your sheets. It says, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in the straight paths in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. It's promising that Israel will return, more specifically that the northern kingdom will return. But it speaks of Jesus as, uh, sorry, it speaks of Israel as God's son in both passages. So what will we have in mind when we read in Matthew 3.17, where Jesus has just been baptised, And it says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. When it says he's his beloved Son, who will we be thinking of? What will we be thinking in our minds? We'll be thinking of Israel, from what Matthew showed us. The people of Jesus' time would know those passages, and would know that they referred to that. So Jesus is the new Israel, the true Israel. And it's a bit like, in this passage, a bit like background music. You know, films have that quite a lot these days. Uh, well, to be fair, some of the best ones are from the 1980s, weren't they? So, uh, if you're watching a film and you hear the sort of dun 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 what's coming? A shark. You know, it's Jaws. And you know that when you're watching that film, that means the shark is coming. Or, or uh, if you're watching Star Wars and you start hearing dun 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 It's not the wedding march. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story later if you ask me about that, but um, you know that Darth Vader's going to appear, because it's, it's, it's his music. Or Lord of the Rings, like, they play that like, all the way through, everybody has their own sort of bit of music uh, that plays through. And it's just in the background, but it's sort of showing you what's coming, it's showing you what's there. And the background music, really, for Matthew 1-5 to is that theme of the exodus, uh, sorry, the exile, the new exodus, Israel as God's son. It's bringing those things to our minds so as we read it, that's what we're thinking about. And the reason that we don't hear that music is often we don't know our Old Testaments very well. So when it starts playing Jeremiah 31, we don't know that that's actually got Jesus as, got Israel as God's son. We don't know that's actually all about the new covenant. That's what really Jeremiah 31 is, coming back and entering into that new covenant. So Jesus is the new Israel, that's what it's showing us. Why are we talking about that? Well, because if Jesus is the true Israel, then he can fulfil the old covenant. He can fulfil the old covenant. 
Think. We had that problem, didn't we? How can God keep his promises to Abraham when he made them conditional on Israel's obedience? How can God keep his promises to Abraham, which were unconditional, when he's made them conditional on Israel's obedience? It can only work if you have an Israel who obeys. And that only works if he himself meets the conditions. So God doesn't abolish the Old Covenant. He fulfills it in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus obeys as the new Israel, the promised blessings can come. Because Jesus succeeds where old Israel failed, the promises are unlocked. The mystery is solved. And this is why his being God's people is crucial. Now we can receive the blessings that uh, were promised in the Old Testament. And we'll see more of that next week. So Jesus is God's people. The new Adam and the new Israel. But Jesus also is God's place. God's place is Jesus. God's place is Jesus. This is going to sound a little bit stranger. uh, But God's place is Jesus. He is the true tabernacle and the true temple. So if you look on the back of your sheets, you see there there's John 1, 14. Quite a famous passage. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as the the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelt there is the word tabernacled. Uh, it's picked up quite So Jesus tabernacled amongst us. He, he put up his tent amongst us, if you like. And you might think, well, that's a bit tenuous, but it's, it's more explicit elsewhere. So John chapter 2. Um, I think I've just put the last verse there for you. I'll read you the, the whole section from 19 to 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Or Matthew 12, verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And Jesus there is talking about himself. So Jesus is portraying himself. The Gospels portray Jesus as the new tabernacle, as the new temple. He is the place where we meet with God. Think that's what the temple was in the Old Testament. wasn't the place where you meet with God. He is in himself that, so God and humanity come together in him. He is both God and he's man, perfect union of the two. But also God and humanity come together through him because he is the place we go to meet God. Not to temples or to tents, not to mountaintops or monasteries. Jesus Christ, he is where we meet with God. So if you're here this morning and investigating, if you want to know how to find God, look at Jesus. If you want to know God, know Jesus Christ. He is where it's at. So it's not about pilgrimages to the Holy Lands. It's not about being physically close to a statue or a picture. It's about meeting Jesus in his word, the Bible. So if you want to know God, look there. So we can understand this because we have the temple. It was a shadow of Jesus to come. Do you remember the question that Solomon asked when the temple was built? Can God dwell in a building when the heavens can't even hold him? And the answer to that was yes he can. Because he lived in the temple. It's hard to get our heads around but we know that he did. 
Can God dwell in a person when the universe can't contain him? Well, yes, he did. Yes, he does. There's that wonderful hymn by Charles Wesley, isn't there? Let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree, to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity, our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. That's really what we see here, that the temple is able to teach us in the Old Testament, that God can dwell somewhere. It starts with the tabernacle, starts with the temple, but it's fulfilled in Christ. God and man coming together, heaven meeting with earth. Jesus is that place. And that's why we don't need a temple anymore. That's why we don't need a holy land or a holy place. He is our holy place. God's place is Jesus. <clears throat> and it's also true that God's rule and blessing is Jesus. God's rule and blessing is Jesus. We'll split this in half and take it bit by bit. So God's rule is Jesus. He lived perfectly under God's rule. He was the only person who ever lived, who never sinned, who never broke the law. He perfectly obeyed it. And we see that throughout uh, the Gospels. We see that, didn't we, a little bit when we looked at him as God's people. He doesn't make the mistakes that we do. So he was God's people, perfectly living under God's rule. At his death, people were asked to bring forth accusations against him. But actually, they couldn't, could they? All they could say was that he claimed to be able to rebuild the temple in three days. And he was telling the truth. He was talking about his body. So he was sinless. He never broke a single commandment of the law of Moses. He lived perfectly under God's rule. But he also expresses God's rule. So he lived under God's rule, but he expresses God's rule. And we see that really as, as him being the son of David. Remember, that was one of the ways that Matthew 1 verse 1 described him, the son of David. And I think we're comfortable with this. We've covered this quite a bit over the, the past few months. But he is this new David that was promised. Remember the David who would be the shepherd over the sheep? The one who would be both God and man? So he is our king, our Christ. Really, that's what that title is about. God rules through him. Just as he ruled in different ways in the Old Testament. So he is under God's rule, but he expresses God's rule as well. And secondly within that, the blessing. We see the blessing through Jesus as him of being the seed of Abraham, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham spoken of in Genesis. If you remember uh, way back then, I mentioned that seed or offspring is a bit like the word sheep. I said that's all I know about sheep and you ask David for other uh, information about sheep. Uh, but the only thing I know, really, is that you can have one sheep, and if you have two of them, it's still sheep. Um, and that word seed, or offspring, is the same. Well, that offspring is Jesus. We've thought about it lots being Israel, but it is Jesus, 100%. So look uh, at Galatians 3, verse 16, it's on the back of your sheets. The Bible tells us this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. It's there in black and white. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. He is the seed, the son of Abraham. Now, we've seen through the Bible that Israel is also the, son, uh, also the offspring of Abraham, haven't we? But that's not contradictory because of what we've just seen. Because Jesus is the new Israel. He is the new people of God. 
So we begin to see now how it all starts to fit together. But this means that Jesus is the one who inherits the promises to Abraham. He's the one who gets the blessings. And he now offers those blessings to us. He brings blessings to the nations. In him the whole earth is blessed. So we too can now be children of Abraham. That's how the New Testament speaks of us as well. More on this next week. But do you see that actually that makes a big difference? He is the one who's able to bring blessing to the whole world. Those promises were actually about him. And he makes it possible through his death. That's our fourth point. Makes it possible through his death. It would seem wrong to talk about Jesus without speaking about the central point of his life, which was his death. If Christ is the centre of the scriptures, then the cross is central to Christ. And the cross, again, only really makes sense if these things that we've been talking about are true of Christ. We see them in focus on the cross. So it's crucial that Jesus is God's people. If he weren't God's people dying on the cross, he couldn't be our representative. If Jesus had been an angel, he couldn't have died in the place of mankind. He couldn't have been that second Adam and pay for the sins of mankind. It's like for like. It's fitting as he dies on the cross that he's God's place. So we talked about the tabernacle and the temple being where we meet with God. But they were also places of sacrifice. That was where sin was atoned for. That's where the spotless lamb was killed. So if you think about Jesus, he's the priest, isn't he, who offers the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And he's also the temple where it takes place. That's a full house, isn't it? That's full atonement for you. He's all those things foreshadowed. And on the cross, Jesus took the curse to bring blessing. So think as Jesus died on the cross, what are the pictures that you see? He has a crown of thorns on his head. What are thorns about? Well, they're about the curse, aren't they? Adam's curse. Thorns in the world. The wooden cross, the tree, reminds us of the law's curse. Curse to all those who are hung on a tree. His beatings remind us of the rods of men. The curse that was to the son of David, that he would be beaten with rods of men. He took our curse. And we, in turn, get his blessings. In dying, that was when he crushed the serpent's head. As he himself was crushed. He really is the serpent crusher. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that's the flesh, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He was a serpent crusher, he defeated the devil on the cross by his death. So what are some of the implications as we think all this through this morning? Well, it has massive implications for how we read the Bible. The implication is that we should read the Bible Christocentrically. That's in the light of Christ. Um, well, with Christ as central. Put it as the light of, in the light of Christ and our distinctives. If the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing, is the theme of the whole Bible, and Jesus is the fulfilment of that theme, then the whole Bible is about Jesus. And not in the way that we usually think. We don't need to look for Jesus in every pomegranate in the temple. We don't need to look for those tenuous links that sort of, you latch 
Jesus on to the end of a talk. Every passage has something to teach us about Christ. Because if you think, those themes go through the Bible. Whether we're looking at God's people, that's there to teach us something about Christ. Whether we're looking at God's place, as we see the tabernacle, the temple, Eden, exile, all those things teach us something about Christ. Whenever we're looking at how God rules or blesses his people, all of these things point us to Christ. Not so that it becomes irrelevant, talking about Christ, rather than talking about us, but it becomes relevant to us because he is our saviour. We are in him, as we'll see next week. So actually, it doesn't make those things irrelevant. Actually, it gives them relevance. Because we belong to Christ, and they are about him. Now, I don't want to say that we can't learn other things from Bible passages. So we can learn things about ourselves from them. But the primary meaning, the one we should be looking for, is the Christological one, the one about Jesus. So that will affect every passage we read, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, from poetry to prophets, from narrative to New Testament letters. And in some places, that will be more obvious. There are sort of givens, aren't there? You read uh, Isaiah 53 and you know that's about Jesus. But other places, it'll need a bit more brain work. But thankfully, God's given us brains. That's what they're there for, to think those things through, to think about God, to think about Christ. But the meaning as we think through the scriptures will only be complete when we've considered it in the light of Christ. Otherwise, we'll end up doing things like avoiding shellfish or stoning adulterers. We won't have a complete answer, will we, for our our friends if we don't understand how Jesus works, how that works with the Bible fitting together through Christ. And if we change our view of scripture, if we change our view of how we see the Bible, then actually that changes how we see the world, doesn't it? Because the Bible is the way that we see the world. It affects it. It's the lens that we look at our world through. So seeing the Bible differently means seeing the world differently. It's a continual process, isn't it? As we look through scriptures, as we learn more, we start to learn more about our world as well. And as we see how the word points us to Christ, we'll see how the world is centred around him as well. How God's purposes for history are centred around Christ. Actually, it will give us a, a greater grasp of reality as we understand these things. The other implication I want to talk about is if we miss this out, what if we didn't do this week in the Bible overview? What if we, we did something else? Well, Some strange things happen when you miss out this pointing to Christ, this Christocentricity. The first thing is that you need a load of things to happen before the end of the world. So if you think about all the prophecies that we've seen in the Old Testament, with the temple and uh, the tabernacle and and the, 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 the new David, well, if they didn't happen in Jesus, then you've got to wait for them to happen before the the end comes, haven't you? You need a new temple. You need the Jews to return home. You need the lost ten tribes to return home as well. You need literal fulfilment of all these things. That's why you find some Christians are sort of obsessed with Israeli politics. Why some have lost the urgent possibility of Jesus' return. Because they think, well, it's alright, all the Jews aren't at home yet. So you end up with all these things that have to happen before the end of the world. Or you come up with some sort of complicated idea about a thousand year reign on earth, where all these things have to happen. 
That's where that idea comes from. So the temple's rebuilt before the end, but it'll be in another sort of time period. Um, really what they're, they're doing is they're, they're just skipping over Christ. So Jesus' coming didn't really matter that so much because all the stuff that needs to be fulfilled is going to be happening afterwards. And it's basically speculation because they don't see how it's fulfilled in Christ. But the scripture doesn't present it that way, does it? Jesus could return today. We believe that, don't we? He He could come before we finish this meeting. There aren't all these things that need to happen before he comes back. Because... He fulfilled all those things. When Jesus returns, it will be the end. No extra time. So will we be ready for Jesus to come back? Are we ready for Jesus to come back today? It's not just about jumping over Jesus and waiting for these things to happen in the future, because Jesus fulfilled them. The other possibility that you have, if you don't go down that line, is that the Old and New Testament are not distinct. So if you like, Jesus is just a point along the line. Jesus coming makes little difference. Everything sort of carries on as before. That means the scripture is flattened because the new covenant is basically the same as the old covenant. What happens in the old basically happens in the new as well. You get that in two different forms. Catholicism does this. So you get the idea that there are priests in the Old Testament, therefore we should have priests in the New Testament. There are altars in the Old Testament... Altars in the New Testament. But it also sneaks into Protestantism as well. So losing the spirit happens in the Old Testament with Saul. Therefore it can happen in the New. Tattoos are forbidden in the Old Testament. Therefore we can't have tattoos in the New Testament. Jesus makes little difference really along along the lines. Now obviously both these things are caricatures. Everybody's theology is on a spectrum here, isn't it? I'm not meaning to be disrespectful by presenting uh, things in quite basic terms. But we must do justice to the fact that Jesus came. We must do justice to the fact that the New Testament presents him as the fulfilment of those Old Testament prophecies. See, the New Testament doesn't look so much for literal fulfilment. Now, what by literal fulfilment there, I mean, when it talks about the temple, it means a physical, literal temple that will appear. It looks for Christological fulfilment in Christ. This is more the picture, really, uh, of the New Testament. All those themes, God's people, God's place, God's rule, coming together in Christ. And the same God-breathed scripture that gives us the prophecy, like out of Egypt I called my son, also gives us the fulfilment as well. Scripture interprets scripture. That's a principle of the Reformation, isn't it? So if you look at what the New Testament says... It says that it's all fulfilled in Christ. So that means we reach, if you remember our diagram last week, and we had uh, that, that the, the expectations go higher, that the reality goes lower. Well, we reach an even higher expectation that Jesus meets it here. He goes better than what was promised in the Old Testament. It'd be a bit like if uh, you promised your child uh, when they were growing up that when they were older, that you'd buy them a telephone. And by that, you know, I mean like landline, you know, could have it in their room. But by the time they get older, actually, you buy them an iPhone. I think they'd much prefer that, wouldn't they? It's the same thing, but better. Or imagine if uh, going back, you know, a few hundred, well, hundred or so years, uh, somebody promised someone else a horse and cart. That actually cars were invented and they bought them a car. 
It's the same but better. You wouldn't complain, oh, I haven't got my horse and cart, why have you bought me a Ferrari? You know, you wouldn't do it, would you? It's the same, it's on that same line, but it's better. So Jesus actually does even more uh, than we can ask or imagine in in those senses. He's better. So this is what we end up with in our diagram. All of these things point to Jesus. And yet, there is a now and a not yetness to this, a now and a not yetness. There is a sense in which it has been fulfilled, and it is being fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled. But the focus on this week has been, it has been fulfilled. Jesus has done this all. And all that follows through the next two weeks as we finish off, will flow out from this. All that comes from this uh, will be following on from Jesus on the cross. Jesus being uh, God's people in God's place, enjoying his rule and blessing. And unlocking those blessings through his death. All that will happen from now on, really, is that we'll consummate, we'll finish off what Jesus already achieved. So let me give you a quote from Graham Goldsworthy, who wrote a book about this. He said, let, let us be very clear about this point. Christ does not return to do some new or different work. His returning glory will be to consummate the finished work of his life, death, and resurrection. I'll read that again. Let us be very clear about this point. Christ does not return to do some new or different work. His returning glory will be to consummate the finished work of his life, death, and resurrection. We're going to explore that over the next two weeks. But at this stop in our hitchhike, we see that Jesus is the answer. His life, and especially his death and resurrection, are the centre point of scripture. They're the centre point of history. So the question for us this morning is, are they the centre point of your life? 